Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. academic calling Jane McAlevey. Jane McAlevey is a longtime labor organizer who has worked on union campaigns, led contract negotiations, and trained and developed other organizers. She brings her expertise and passion to bear in a collective bargain, an urgent call to arms for unions. Unions, she argues, are the best means we have to combat the growing income inequality in America, which has created an economic crisis and distorted our democracy to serve the few on top at the expense of everyday working Americans. We spoke with Jane about her work, the forces that threaten American unions, and some of the signs of hope for the future. Hi, Jane. It's Diane Burroughs from HarperCollins. Hi, it's Jane. It's great to talk to you. <laughs> it is great to talk to you. Um, I was so excited to read your book. Um, and. It, there's so much information in it, but the thing that really got me going is on page 76, and it's that little chart you made from the Economic Policy Institute from union membership and share of income going to the top 10%. Yeah. It's shocking. I mean, there's this 1917 to 2015, and there's this very nice sweet spot Sometime right after the war, World War II, through right. about 1970 or so, yeah, or they sort exactly. of come close, and everything else is just crazy divert, just diverges. Yeah, and if so, if unions were such a big part of why people were getting paid well and had health care. What happened? And had predictable schedules and had hours that they could count on for their child care planning and for taking care of elders. Yes, all those things were actually happening in the United States of America. It's really true. Um, and what was happening was that it was the greatest growth of trade unions in the United States. Um, you know, and I, what I try and walk people through in the book, in the chapter Who Killed the Unions, is, the, is, the, is, is how do you wrap down the history story of the destruction of the greatest moment of equality in the country. Um, and, and I'm trying to make the story of how the unions were destroyed clear and accessible, because I think it's really not understood uh, in this country. It's better understood outside of the United States than it is inside of the United States. Now that I'm doing a lot of work in many European countries, in Australia and Canada and all over the world, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly interested by the fact that many people in most of the world understand that the most extreme anti-worker, anti-union laws in the world exist in the United States, which is not the common understanding among people in our own country. So it's it fascinates me. Um, so yeah, the story of the the story of inequality and the story of rising inequality today can be traced in you know, probably three or four simple charts, most of which are in the book, um, that outline, there's a, there's a pretty direct link between when workers were able to exercise a sort of freedom in the workplace to come together um, and make, you know, fairly straightforward and simple demands that they deserved a greater share of the profit. 
um, and the corporate elite of this country deciding that workers were asking for too much in their view. Uh, and so they set about uh, in earnest beginning in 1947. I explain in the chapter Who Killed the Unions, talking about the chart that you talk about, I explain that there was sort of a hangover effect of really well ordered, you know, really well negotiated contracts where workers still had a lot of power. So you don't begin to see the real rupture until a couple of decades later. But the groundwork was laid in 1947 for the essentially the elimination of all the real powers and powers of unions and freedoms that workers had to organize. And there's a series of waves. I say there were three major structural attacks that I lay out um, in the chapter who killed the unions because, and, and it's interesting because it was actually my editor who renamed the chapter, which was originally what happened to America's unions. And I want to credit my very <laughs> smart editor for having read it and not knowing a lot about unions herself and saying, I actually just think the chapter's title is wrong. And I think she was right. So we changed the title based on that. Well, I have to tell you, I agree. And I think what's interesting is that some of the the phrases and wording we have for some of the restrictions on unions, um, the right to work state. Yeah, yeah. They're Doesn't so that clever. sound great? <laughs> yeah, it does. I mean, I always, I feel like one common theme in the United States, certainly in my lifetime, is that the people who oppose worker freedoms um, are very good at, at terminology and narrative uh, and narrative construction um, and semantics, far better in some ways than you know, a more progressive or sort of side of the aisle, you know what I mean? Yes. So, and I think it plays out in things like the right to work, uh, which is absolutely the right to work for a lot less money, for no predictable schedules, for no bereavement leave, no health care, no much of anything. Really, that's actually what it's, you know, I've always called it the right to work for less. Um, but that's obviously not, not what the law is called. I know. It's, I, I think that you have to have a certain amount of um, cynicism um, in order to come up with a phrase like the right to work for that. Um, and as well as perhaps the Koch brothers and Citizens United. That also yes. sounds very appealing. It sure does. Yes, it does. And of course, I link them together, right? Those yeah. concepts in the book because um, what I'm, part of what I'm trying to show and I do believe the 2016 and the 2018 elections um, ha helped, is that the, the wildly frightening uh, attacks on our democracy right now, 300,000, you know, I woke up to the news today, yeah. 300,000 voters were removed from the voting list in Georgia. That's the latest news of the voter purges. There was another several hundred thousand taken off of Wisconsin's list last week. So um, what I try and show in the book is that the, 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 the effort to diminish a functioning democracy as the demographics of the United States change so that younger people of color and mixed backgrounds are becoming a majority, the people who have long controlled the country, which, is, which are generally very powerful, um, straight white men uh, are going out of their way to, to reconstruct election rules uh, more like they did when blacks were given, you know, freedom in this country sure. in the last century. Um, it's like we're on another wave of constructed voter suppression so that 
the minority can hold on to their control. And what I show in the book is that while you have a lot of other literature now describing the moment that we're in where our democracy is really, the foundations of it are under attack, you know, we had the impeachment yesterday. I mean, there's a lot happening that, 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 it, that surrounds the question of the Constitution and democracy. What I show in the book is that the, the sort of the experimental realm for this was in America's workplaces. And every kind of tactic and method that has been used to destroy sort of small d democracy for workers in the American workplace is what's now on display. And I'm suggesting we're only seeing the beginning of it um, in terms of the attack on American democracy. And it's, it's for someone who spent a lot of her life, which is, you know, in my case, actually working with workers to form unions and then to negotiate collective agreements together, um, I feel like well, I have this insight about how bad things are about to get unless Americans start fighting a lot harder to defend the institution called democracy. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I have to say, I mean, I think there's some hope here, obviously. Um, I, I've always been disturbed by California's um, Proposition 13 that was just sort of made it almost impossible to raise taxes and really affected public education out there. But yeah, Absolutely. there was some hope. There was some hope here with the LA teachers strike. Really big hope, yeah. not only that, but the LA teachers strike, which of course, this is sort of the first serious writing about the LA teachers strike just because the timing of my due date, February 1, timed <laughs> incredibly well for the strike. Uh, so, you know, it's in Los Angeles writing furiously, mm -hmm. just trying to get this one more chapter in the book as it was unfolding. And um, not, only is, not only is there hope in what's happening with the LA teachers, but the continuation is going right to what you mentioned in Prop 13. Part of what the LA teachers' number one priority is in 2020 is rolling the level of organization they had in the strike to the ballot box in November of 2020 in California because there is the first serious challenge to Proposition 13 ever is, is, is about to qualify for the ballot. It made it through the Attorney General's offices, the California Teachers Association, the statewide union as a lead driver of it along with several others. And it is likely to be the first attempt uh, that has a that stands a real chance. From I mean, we got a new poll yesterday showing 60%. So it stands a real chance of actually uh, breaking the stronghold that corporations have had on not paying taxes in California. And since it's the fifth largest economy, I'm following this quite closely right now because I feel like in the last two years we've seen this movement among educators in the United States challenging extreme austerity, right, from their classroom and the and the circumstances their kids are living in, and now they're realizing if we can't figure out how to put how to make major corporations pay taxes again in this country, we have nowhere to go. Like we can strike, which by the way, it's hard to do a strike as well as they did it, right? But so even even pulling off a really great strike, they're realizing there's not enough money in the piggy bank unless the corporations start paying again. So the brilliant teachers in Los Angeles are now rolling into I'll just say one more word. It's called splitting the roles. It's essentially taking out what we believe is a corporate loophole in Prop 13. It won't affect residential taxes, which is the third rail of California politics. It's an effort to actually force, you know, Disneyland and Chevron and all these major corporations who are paying the same property taxes they paid in 1977. Oh my gosh. To pay up. 
Oh my gosh. And also, I mean, these corporations benefit from a good public school system and from roads and all the other public services that are provided to them. Absolutely. Positively. Every single day that passes in this state, uh, I'm just amazed. You know, I say to people when they ask me about the Bell Initiative, and it's just starting to get out there, and I say to people, let me ask a question, like when you and your family go to Disneyland, do you, is, it, is the ticket price the same as 1977? I'm just checking. Right? It's absurd. <laughs> and when you go to when you go to a Chevron gas station, is the gas price the same as it was in 1977? No. So why is, why are those corporations paying the same property taxes they were paying in 1977? You know, it's just it's really out of whack. So to me, there is a lot of promise actually, and I feel like we are in. You know, we're, we're in a very volatile stage um, in this country. We've been at it before. And on one side, you've got the biggest worker rebellion of my lifetime, which I find deeply encouraging. Yes. Um, and on the other side, you know, you've got the impeachment of a, of a sitting president who, um, quite frankly, could have had another 20 articles of impeachment, from what I can tell. But, yes. you know, that would have been legitimate <laughs> in the debate. I understand the strategy they're using. Right. But so, you know, we have, we have voter suppression running rampant, you know, uh, we have governors who should have been governors like Stacey Abrams in Georgia, you know, where, where, where the analogy to the destruction of unions is, is that's one of the best ones where I say to people, if you, many people, you know, of sound mind believe that Stacey Abrams really did win the Georgia's governor's mm-hmm. race and say, you know, that wasn't a fair race because the person who won it was actually overseeing the election. And I say, welcome to a union election in America. Every single one of them is overseen by the opposition. Right. <laughs> it's a really hard thing to do, yes. you know? So yeah, there's a there's a lot there's a lot of there is a lot of hope. I mean, I am, um, I think, an eternal optimist, um, and because I see the determination in so many ordinary people to try and wrestle control of the democracy back from the few that have a pretty good hold on it at the moment, but but shaky. Yeah, I I do feel like I wanted to end on a on a on an up note. Um, because I, I feel like that's what unions and organizers do. I mean, they have to convince uh, so many people to come on board. And you, so the message, I think, has to be not just fear, but also, look what we could do. Oh, yeah. You know, um, so much, so much of a hard organizing campaign is about raising people's expectations that they are legitimate in their uh, belief that they and their family who put in a good day's work deserve more. And once, once we, and I talk a lot about that in the book, both in the chapter on the Los Angeles teachers, also in the chapter on the Philadelphia campaign I was running, um, and in the chapter in the beginning where I talk about the, in chapter one with the extraordinary victories where I say, you know, workers can still win big. I mean, the, the life lesson for me is when unions do their work well, when they do the job well, when they raise workers' expectations, when they empower workers, when they put agency in the hands of very smart, millions of very smart, ordinary people, my life experience tells me workers make good decisions every time they're actually brought into the discussions about how to win in the strategy. And I have certainly spent a lifetime um, working in very hard campaigns. You know, it's interesting to me the Google out here, the Google Corporation has just hired a company called IRI Inc. Uh, to start fighting the workers, and they fired four workers at Google last week. Oh, they certainly did. Into silica, right? It's fascinating <laughs> to me. Well, in cha- the chapter in the book about Philadelphia called How Do, we get, How Do Workers Get a Union, where I talk about the big campaigns I was running in 2016, I keep going between the field and the academy and the field and the academy, and I was back in the field, and 
in that campaign, we were fighting IRI Inc. So I've got a ton of requests right now from Google workers who are like, we understand that you led a big campaign against IRI Inc. And I just want to say that this book is hitting at a very good time for people who are coming to realize that they're going to have to go old school and just form some unions out in the high-tech sector because it really is the only way American workers get justice on the job is when they come together in large numbers and democratically negotiate the kind of terms and conditions that they want and deserve at work. Thank you. That's so empowering to hear. Um, I feel like, you know, with Silicon Valley and all the, the Google um, controversies and all of that, it just feels like there's a younger generation out there that puts work in its place at this point. Um, yeah. We always hear about, you know, Silicon Valley, everyone's working for those stock options, are going to be there until three in the morning right. um, with no guarantees. It's all such a, a, a gamble. It's a roll of the dice. Oh, it's not, yeah, it's not. It's a role, It's also like a myth. It's like they created this narrative that, you know, people were going to have time off and leisure time and make your own schedule. And as I detail in the book, from Taylor Hesselgrave's story to many others, that is uh, frankly not what's happening. And people do want to have a life, and they do want to raise a family, and they do want time to smell the roses. And the the basic fight for eight, eight, and eight, right? Eight hours for work, eight hours for sleep, eight hours for what you will. Um, is an unfinished business in this country, and it comes in cycles. And we are in a cycle where workers are going to need to fight a lot harder, um, and they're doing it, and they're standing up, and they're standing up in France and defending their pensions. And I am an optimist, and I think there are a lot of lessons and tools um, in the book, in the new book. I agree. I have to yeah. tell you, you could convince me of anything. I, <laughs> I was the worst union organizer ever. I mean, I would just crumble. Uh, oh. You know, I was terrible at it. Um, people would look at me like, like, well, the company gives me everything I need, and I'd be like, oh, okay. <laughs> but I was 20. <laughs> uh, I really, I, I, I love the work. It's actually hard. It's hard for me, like, right now. I mean, I was meeting with a bunch of graduate students yesterday trying to coach yeah. them on a big project on collective um action and collective bargaining and you know I was like getting deep into this research project with them and they're so excited to start working on it and all I want to do is go back in the field you know what I mean so I, I, it's just I, it's a constant life thing because I love hard campaigns <laughs> yeah those graduates I mean I think so many people get um, are just banging down doors to get their students their kids into these crazy expensive schools and then they wouldn't buy sneakers that are made in a bad factory and yet they're banging down the door thank get, you for sharing you know? Exactly right. Absolutely. It's crazy. Positively. Oh, you know, we have a thing we do here for what our podcast. Do? It's we ask you who your favorite teacher is or was. Was? Really? Was, yeah. I mean, I actually know it. And the odd thing is that a brother of mine ran into him recently at a <gasps> Democratic Party caucus, which was so bizarre. My favorite teacher, the, the teacher who impacted my life the most for real, is named Steve Perez. He's apparently retired in Florida. He hears us, I hope he does. Um, he blew my mind in 10th grade. Um, it was a class called, at a very good, speaking of good public schools, I went to a very good public school system. It's been destroyed since, by the way, you know, just by austerity, but in the years that I attended it, it was amazing, and I had, I transitioned into high school, and I had um, Asian African studies. Uh, for like the social studies class. It was a very, very, very excellent program. And he was an extraordinary teacher who um, I think changed every single student who went through his class. I, I came to understand race and race. I mean, I had a good foundation in my house for understanding the legacy of racism in the United States. But this one teacher 
in the course of a one year by by the assignments he gave us and the incredibly um, challenging debates that we had in class changed every single person who went through his classes. So my high school teacher, part of why I love working with teachers unions is because, I mean, I can name a whole bunch of them still, and I'm, you know, pretty old now these days. You know what I mean? <laughs> so like I can name a bunch of my high school teachers and talk specifically about things that I learned from them about life, not just about what was in the textbook. And that was true of Steve Perez. So there you go. Oh, terrific. All right. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you. Good. I can tell you that, that two days ago, I got the first copy of the book, like it was off the press, and, yep. and they overnighted it to me. And I walked into a meeting at UC Berkeley uh, on Tuesday, and there was a bunch of academics in the room, um, and the director of the Institute for Research and Labor Employment, where, I'm, where I have my policy fellowship now, stood up in the room, he had just sat on my desk, and he had read the galleys, mm -hmm. and he stood up in the room and said, this book needs to be on every single person's syllabus because Yay. your students will learn. Yeah, was, I was like, whoa, <laughs> nice move. People were like, did you pay him to say that? I said, no, really, I didn't. All Thanks right. a lot. All right, take Happy care. Holidays. All right. Yeah. So long. Take care. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.